You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 51, let's begin reading in verse 10. David there writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. David had fallen. He had done the unthinkable. If committing adultery with the wife of one of his devoted followers was not bad enough, David had arranged his murder. Uriah is one of David's most trusted soldiers, one who had fought faithfully alongside the king, In fact, Uriah is murdered while fighting a battle David had shamefully avoided. For several months, David carefully hid his sin. Oh, I'm sure there were whispers going around the palace. The king doesn't do anything without someone noticing. But no one dare criticize or confront the king because David was a larger-than-life person in Jerusalem. He was the giant killer. He was the anointed king. He was the author of many of the top ten worship songs that they sang in the tabernacle. He was the beloved king. He was the one that Samuel had declared to be a man after God's own heart. But sadly, after months of cover-up, only one of his companions had the courage to step forward. Finally, Nathan the prophet, he came to David telling him a story, a sad story really, about a poor man who had just one little lamb. This lamb was loved and cherished as a member of his family. But in the same city, there was a rich man who had a huge flock, many, many sheep. And one day a traveler, a visitor came into the city to visit the rich man, and rather than kill one of his many sheep, To feed his guest, he went and he took the poor man's lamb and he slaughtered it. And that's how he fed his visitor. Well, David became furious. And he wanted this man severely punished. And that's when Nathan looked into the angry eyes of the king and he said, David, you are that man. David's punishment for his sin would be severe. The child that came from that one night stand with Bathsheba would die. 
David's kingdom from this point forward would be in constant conflict and war. Nathan even declared that some of the wives of David would be publicly humiliated and violated by his son Absalom. And that same son would even lead a rebellion against his father. Bottom line, Nathan informs David that there's some pain and some suffering that's going to come your way. David, that's what lies in your future. You see, his sin had a very steep bill to pay. Why? Well, I think two reasons, really. First, David's particular sins were ones that come with heavy earthly consequences. Guys, adultery always is terribly destructive on a family. And premeditated murder, well, according to the law, that came with a death penalty. Even to the king. Though he would not die, but the child would. In contrast, you know, some sins that we commit, they seem to have very few consequences in this life. And at times, we're tempted to think that we're getting away with things. We mistakenly think that God has overlooked our sin or that He hasn't really considered it that bad. But don't fool yourself by what's going on around you. As we'll later see, though the earthly penalties may be small, the penalties against God would be great. God hadn't overlooked David's sin and God doesn't overlook our sin. Our relationship with God will always eventually suffer great loss because of our sin. The second reason for the severity of David's punishment is given to us by Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12. There, David has confronted Nathan and he continues the conversation and, and David finally says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Do you see it? He tells David, Because by this deed, You've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That was the reason. And I wonder how many times we give occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme against Him. You know, guys, when a woman or a man shines their life as a bright light of God's goodness and God's grace and God's blessing, when that light goes dark, it is a great darkness. It's noticeable to everyone. You know, during an ice storm that we have from time to time, every once in a while, you know, the small limbs that fall off the pine trees around us, well, they don't really scare us. They, they just kind of fall harmlessly to the ground. They don't do a lot of damage. We hardly notice. We don't pay a lot of attention. But when one of those giant oak trees topple under the weight of the ice and the wind, and they fall on a house or a car, boy, we take notice, don't we? It's all over the local news. The cameras are snapping pictures and the stories are being reported and we pray that no one's hurt. But see, it's the same way with sin. When a person whose life has very little impact on the world around us for the, for the God, you know, and, 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 and nobody pays attention to it. When that person falls, we hardly take notice. 
we probably would say something like, well, that doesn't surprise me. I saw how they were living their life, so what if they fail? But when a person who's taken a stand for righteousness, when that person stumbles and falls, when the person who has stood up at work and spoken testimony of what God has done in their life, when that person falls, everyone stops and gawks. They all have some biting comment. Usually it's on social media these days. The tweet goes out. It usually goes something like, oh, I knew that whole God thing was a fake. Or they might write in their blog, you know, those Christians are so self-righteous, but look at them, they're just phonies. Whatever the comment is, the sentiment is always the same. You can't believe or trust those Christians. And you certainly can't believe their message. Guys, when a bright light goes dark, much damage is done to the reputation of the Lord. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we want to shy away from shining our light. It just means that we need to understand what's at risk. How great the consequences are if we fall. The truth is, we are all susceptible to sin. The truth is, we are all going to fail in some way. And that's why we need to be careful putting people on a pedestal. No doubt, the pedestal that David was on was a very high one. But we have to be careful basing our faith on the faithfulness of another person. Have you done that? Are you trusting God because somebody like a pastor or a mentor or a parent, you know, they trusted the Lord and they, they, their light shines so bright. What happens if they fall? Listen, make sure your faith is in Jesus, not in me, not in Pastor Sandy, not in some other man or woman or in some parent. Guys, David was a man who loved God with all his heart. And yet in a moment of moral weakness and failure, he brought great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Don't think it cannot happen to you and me. It can. Now hopefully our failures won't be the size of David's. But sin is sin. And we're going to find that when we sin, our fellowship with God is going to get broken And like David, we're going to find ourselves at some point in our life in need of true, heartfelt repentance. And so our question that we're going to deal with this morning is how do we respond and react when we fall into sin as believers? And we do. Do we try to hide it and hope it won't be found out? Do we try to cover our tracks and, well, hope nobody noticed? Or do we really repent? And the real question is this morning, do we understand what real repentance looks like? Have we ever really experienced true, heartfelt repentance? I'm convinced that most Christians today are really sorrowful when they sin. They're really sad about it. But I believe fewer and fewer really understand what the experience of true repentance is all about. Guys, repentance is more than tears. It's more than mere words of confession and apology that we see on TV. True repentance is always accompanied by certain unmistakable attitudes that will always be present. And with the remaining time that we have together, I want us to look at four of these attitudes or these 
these evidences that we've really repented. We see them in the life of David right here in this psalm. For David, it took the confrontation of a prophet to bring him to true repentance. My prayer and my hope is it won't take that for us. That if there's sin in our life today, that we will turn from it the way David did. Now, after we look at those four attitudes of repentance, we're going to look at two fruits of repentance that should be in the life of every believer. And then lastly, we're going to talk about one thing that God never wants from us when it comes to forgiveness. Well, first, let's discuss these evidences of repentance that are seen in the life of David. The first one's found in verse 10. David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God. The first attitude of repentance is the awareness of what the real problem is in my life. And it is me. I am always the problem when it comes to sin in my life. I am the reason for my failure. It's not my parents. It's not my friends. It's not the internet. It's not my job. It's not Hollywood. It's not the fast food restaurant. It's not even the woman at work who comes on to me. And it's not even the young lady who's bathing naked on the rooftop. And it's not even Satan. No, the problem is me. The problem is you. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, a verse, by the way, that we'll get to this Wednesday night, and you want to be here for Wednesday night's study. There Paul writes, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Later, he wrote to the Galatians these words. He said, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Basically, what Paul is saying is, when it comes to sin, I'm the problem. Me, the flesh. I need God to come into my life and create a clean heart. Because I'm dirty. From the inside out, I need to be cleansed. And I need God to come and forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. David was a man of great faith. But he was aware that when he sinned with Bathsheba, that fellowship with God had been broken. Now, he was still a believer. He was still a man full of faith. He, I still believe he had a real heart for God. But his fellowship with God at this moment had been broken. And his heart felt far from the Lord. He knew that a wall of sin had been erected between he and God. His dirty, selfish desires had taken over his life. And they had damaged his friendship with the God that he loved. He knew that he needed a clean heart. He was desperate at this moment for forgiveness and restoration. And it finally came when he admitted that he was the problem. He was the cause. He was responsible. He was the man who had selfishly broken the heart of God. This is where true repentance always begins. It begins with me. With me admitting that I'm the problem. Taking responsibility for my sin and for the consequences that come with it. And not blaming others or making excuses and saying, well, it's just the way I am. There are always contributing factors. Like a woman bathing naked on a roof. 
But David finally admitted that he was the one who had inquired about her. He was the one who had sent for her. He was the one who had seduced her. He was the one who could have simply turned away in that moment, but didn't. Guys, true repentance always starts with a look in the mirror and saying, it's me. Now, the second attitude of repentance is found in the very next sentence. There, David says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Notice that David wanted a steadfast spirit. This word steadfast, it means, it means sturdy or firm. See, for some time, long before David's experience with Bathsheba, his spirit had not been steady. Note that it, it, it's talking here about David's spirit, and it's a small s. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. It's talking about David's spirit, his, his dedication and his obedience to the Lord. It had been wavering. It had gotten rocky. The fact is, David had gotten lazy and he'd gotten complacent spiritually. See, he should have been with his men on the battlefield. You know that. But he had lost focus. He had decided to take the easy way out. He thought, and have you ever thought this? I just deserve a break. I've been fighting a long time. As a matter of fact, I've been winning. And so he stopped fighting. And when he stopped fighting, he got in trouble. And listen, when you and I stop fighting, we are in the greatest danger at that moment. In our case, we're not fighting enemies without. Our greatest battle is with the enemy within. It's with our own flesh. And there are times in our lives when we just decide, I'm going to stop fighting. Maybe you've been winning for a while and you just get lazy. Or maybe you've been losing and you're just ready to give up. Either way, when we stop fighting and when we get complacent against our flesh, we are in grave danger. We start thinking that the war is over. That's a dangerous place for us to be. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12? He said, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. In other words, the person who thinks, I've got this, is the person in the greatest danger. True repentance always comes with a renewed desire to firm up our commitment against our sin. We have to get back to standing steadfast against our flesh and against Satan, and against the pull of the world. The time for spiritual relaxation is over. We have to get back to the fight. Guys, we need a steadfast determination that we will continue to fight the battle every moment of every day. And when you decide that's not necessary, you are in a dangerous place. But true repentance takes us back to that place of fight. Third, real repentance has an, always has an element of desperation in it. Look at verse 11 and see if you see David's desperation. He says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Sin is far more dangerous than most of us believe. We treat some of the sins in our life like an old friend. But in reality, sin is a friend of no one. 
It's an enslaver of people. Guys, sin is a con artist that's bent on destroying your life. It's a vicious killer that if you give it enough time and enough opportunity, I promise you it will kill you. It will destroy your life. You think I'm being exaggerating what I'm saying? Did you know that in 2017, in the calendar year 2017, 72,000 people died as a result of a drug overdose in America? 200 people a day. Do you think any of those people when they got tempted to take that first high, ever thought, oh, one day I'm going to be a statistic. Absolutely not. That's not how sin works. Sin seems so innocent when we first test it. But you know what? Once it has us by the throat and it won't let go, once we try to escape and it's got its grip on us and it won't let go, we realize just how difficult it is to break loose from sin. See, once we're enslaved by sin, we begin to wonder if we're ever going to get back to that loving, forgiving place that God had us in at one point. We start wondering, have we gone too far? Have we spiritually crossed a bridge that we can't get back from? This is the place where David was, and in his desperation, he cried out to God. And he said, God, please do not cast me away from your spirit. God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Have you ever experienced that type of desperation? Have you ever felt alienated from God, wondering, Lord, am I ever going to get back to where I was? My prayer today is that that desperation will drive you open-handed back to your God. Our God who forgives us, who restores us, He'll take us back. But trust me, true repentance, it always has a little bit of desperation in it to regain that closeness to the Father. The fourth evidence is found in verse 12. There David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David recognized that something had been lost in his life because of his sin. And then it hit him. It was the joy of his salvation that he had lost. You know, there, there is a certain unmistakable joy and contentment that comes into a person's life when they first experience salvation and forgiveness. I hope you know what that feeling is like. Do you remember? Do you remember what it felt like? When you first prayed that prayer and turned and gave your life to Christ. For me, it was April 6th, about 47 years ago. It was on a Thursday night. I stepped out of the pew on the second row, right there where Jessica's sitting. And I came and I stood in the altar of the church. And I publicly, for the first time, gave my life to Jesus Christ. And guys, as a 13-year-old boy, I can't tell you how it felt for that weight of sin and guilt and shame to be lifted from my life. It was, it was almost unbelievable. But there have been times in my life when that joy has disappeared. Just like David, it happened usually when I started flirting with some desire of my flesh 
or at a time when I started wavering in my devotion to the Lord and started chasing other things that I shouldn't have been chasing. All of us go through dry times in our walk with God. Times when yeah, we know we're saved, but we just don't feel that joy anymore. Eventually, we usually figure out that, well, God hasn't gone anywhere, but we've drifted a long way. Sin always evokes this experience. Our fellowship with God gets broken. The joy of our salvation quickly dissipates. We feel like we're no longer saved, but we know we are. We just lose the reality of our salvation. We're still a child of the Father, but like the prodigal, we have left God for the pursuit of other things. We've pursued relationships that God simply can't be a part of. Ones that violate His holiness. Relationships that come with compromise and disobedience. And God says, I can't go there. If you're going there, you're going by yourself. Our fellowship with God gets broken. But when we come back, and when we repent, God quickly brings back to our heart that amazing joy that we thought we had lost forever. Hey, the painful consequences of our sin are still going to be there. But the joy returns. And this is what David prayed for. This, this is what I hope your prayer is when you repent. So there are the four attitudes when we generally repented. Let's go over one more time. There's a recognition and an admittance that I'm the problem. I need God to change me. There's the renewed desire to firm up our commitment and wage war with sin once again. There's a desperation in our life to regain our closeness to the Father. And finally, the joy of our salvation begins to return. Now, let's look quickly at two fruits of repentance that should be growing as a result of my true repentance. We find them in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Now, understand, nowhere in the Scripture... Do we have evidence that King David was a Sunday school teacher? Or that he led a home fellowship there in the palace and taught God's Word? It's not there. But somehow, David taught transgressors God's way and they were converted. Let me tell you how I think it happened. David had paid a terrible price for his sinful decisions. And who can better teach about the pain of sin than a broken man. I don't believe anybody can. See, David had become an expert in the field of sowing and reaping, of sowing to the flesh and reaping the consequences of it. There's an old saying that I love to quote. It goes like this, experience is the greatest teacher if you can afford the tuition. Guys, the tuition for David's education in the effects of sin in a per person's life were pretty steep. If we put it in today's lingo, in today's language, we would say it like this. David had some pretty enormous school loans to pay back. Okay? He had paid a price. And it is true. The most effective teachers, the most effective teachers in college and high school today are those who've worked in the field that they're now teaching in. Why are they the best teachers? Because they understand the real world truths of the lessons that they're trying to convey. 
They know how it works out in the real world. And so they can teach students from a place of real experience. Hey, if you're a young person here this morning, and I'm going to let you decide if you're a young person or not, but if you're a young person, let me ask you a question. Are you listening to the older person in your life who is trying to warn you about the dangers that lay ahead on the road that you're traveling? You know, there are people around you who, who, who can clearly see the path and the road that you've chosen to, to travel because they've traveled it before. And they know what lies ahead. You don't. Are you listening to them when they try to warn you? Trust me, it's much less painful to learn in the classroom of their experience than it is in the classroom of your own experience. Pay attention to the lessons that you have the opportunity to learn from those around you. Now, let me say something to the older people that are here today. And I'll let you decide if you're in that category. See, I turned 60 this week, so I feel qualified. Now, I got a membership to the OFC now, okay? So I'm there. Let me ask you a question, though, older people. When you talk to young people about your sinful experiences, do you do it lightly with laughter and a cheerful heart like it was fun? Or do you share those experiences with tears in your eyes and regret in your voice? I think far too many of us we share our sinful experiences like it was fun. And maybe it was for a season. But are you remembering those days correctly? You want to be a teacher of sin and not a promoter. But I'll tell you, I've heard some testimony sometimes, and I was wondering, are they trying to promote this? Or are they trying to teach us about it? Because they, they, they told about their sinful experiences like, well, this was great. We had such a fun time back then. You wouldn't have believed it. You'd have, you'd have really wanted to be there with us. Guys, don't let nostalgia of your sin take you to that dangerous place of making younger people think it was fun and making young, younger people think they really ought to go there. Hey, David, like many of us here today, they have much to teach. I hope you're listening. And if you're a teacher, I hope you're telling the story correctly. Because, listen, <laughs> listen to those who have been scarred by sin. Don't feel like you have to have your own scars. But a lot of us live life feeling like, i got to have some battle scars. Why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? The second fruit is found in verse 14. There David writes, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall sow forth your praise. The fruit of thanksgiving and praise to God will always be present to the person who's experienced true repentance. The person who has tasted God's grace, I promise you, they will want to share it. And they will want to sing their praise back to the Lord. See, David was guilty of bloodshed, man. He had, he had murdered somebody. 
He deserved the death penalty. And yet God had, through His grace, had said, David, you're not going to get it. And David's response to that was, I am going to sing and I am going to shout God's praise. You know, the Bible never qualifies the singer of praise to God. You know, it would be kind of interesting if we, you know, if you, when you came in on the morning, if we had some um, monitors set up out in the foyers and, okay, guys, we need everybody to kind of sing into the mic here for just a moment. We're going to see if you're qualified to go into the sanctuary to sing praise to the Lord. And if you don't pass, you know, we just want you to be quiet when you're in here, okay? That's not what we do. Guys, God doesn't have tryouts for worship. Now, we do have trials for the worship team because we don't necessarily want you might, okay? But God doesn't have tryouts for worship. He wants you to come to his altar with a, with, with a heart of praise, and he wants you to sing it aloud, David said, about God's righteousness. There's no lip singing when it comes to praise. God wants full volume. Some of us need to pray the prayer that David prayed in verse 15. Oh, Lord, open my lips. Because some of you have lockjaw when it comes to praise. Listen, if God has really touched your heart with grace, you're going to want to sing back to Him of praise and thanksgiving. I promise you. Let's end today's teaching with something that God is just simply not interested in from you when it comes to forgiveness. Look at verse 16. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Understand, God wants with all of His heart your repentance. But God is not interested at all in your penance. Do you know what penance is? Penance is trying to somehow compensate God for His offering of grace and forgiveness. It's you attempting to make some sacrifice that will please or appease God. Or, or, or it's you attempting to punish yourself in some way so that you can earn God's forgiveness. Guys, God is not interested in your sacrifice. Do you know why He's not interested? Because He's already made the ultimate sacrifice for you. He has offered up His Son on the cross. And we only insult Him when we try to offer another sacrifice. Our attempts at sacrifice only diminish the incredible work and the magnitude of what He has done. See, we really struggle with this idea of God's grace being free. We do, because this world teaches us that nothing's free. Everything has a catch. But God's grace is free to us. And as we've said often here, that doesn't mean it wasn't costly. It cost God a great deal, but it is free to us. He has paid the bill. He's paid the complete bill. And there's nothing left for you to pay. All He wants for you to do is accept that the payment's been made. And be thankful for it. And don't go back to that pit of sin again. Stay out of it. This is what God wants from us. So stop trying to pay your bill. And I know some of you are. Some of you have been trying to pay it this week. You've done something. 
maybe something good, maybe something harmful, thinking that you were going to help God out with this grace. But the only thing that God wants from us is a broken and a contrite heart. In other words, He wants us to humble ourselves and to trust Him. We've got to get off the pride trip. We've got to get off this idea that somehow we can add to what God has done. Peter said, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. In our pride, we want to, we want to so badly to say to God, God, i got a little bit to help you out here with. God, I, I, can, I, can, I know what you need. I got it. And God just shakes his head and says, the only thing I need from you is to humble yourself and realize you've got nothing for me. You want to please God? Embrace Jesus. Embrace the amazing grace that he has for you. You want to please God? Embrace the gift that he offers you. Listen, the sacrifices that we want to make to God are always born out of one of two or three things. They're either born out of guilt, because we feel so guilty about what we've done that we feel like there must be something that we need to do. Or they're born out of pride, that we somehow feel like, you know, we can add to this, we can be a part of this. Or they're born out of self-reliance, that nobody's ever done anything for me and they're not going to start now. You know, you can have that attitude with God, but you know what God's going to do? God's going to say, fine, then you figure it out. You try to get here on your own. All God wants us to do is embrace the offering that he's made. So you want to give something back to God this morning? Hey, do this. Give God some bold praise. Teach others of the lessons that you've learned the hard way. Or even better, Share some of that attitude of grace that God has given to you to somebody else that doesn't deserve it. Trust me, you do those things, that excites God. He gets excited about those things. He's not interested in your sacrifice, but He is interested in your broken spirit. He's interested in your humility. And when we come to Him that way, David says, these God will not despise. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor James Chapman. If you enjoy the message, you can access more Pastor James' teaching ministry by visiting calvarycsm.org.